0: Yes, hello, this is Ian Anderson calling.
1: And I'm so glad you are. Hi, Ian. You are getting ready to come to Philadelphia. The 50 Years of Jethro Tull will be at the Mann Music Center on Saturday, the 8th of September. The North American tour is actually on the winding down end. How has it been so far?
0: Well, I'm actually getting ready to go to Germany tomorrow to do some concerts there at the weekend. But um, we have you a know, busy summer, and then we come to the USA at the end of this month, and then head off to East. Europe to do a bunch of countries there and some other places and around Europe later in November. So we, we, we've got a fair way to go yet. In fact, we don't finish our, our 50th anniversary concerts until the middle of December. And then I have a few church and cathedral shows to do for charity um, during that part of the year, usually. So... We're, we're we're pretty much on the go until the end of the end of this calendar year.
1: You tour sometimes as Ian Anderson, you tour sometimes as Jethro Tall, and you do have tall members in this band. How do you determine what you're going to be calling yourself each time you go out?
0: Well. When it says Jethro Tullis in reference to the repertoire we're playing, which is, um, you know, if you say, oh, I love the Beatles, I, I assume you really mean you don't necessarily love John, Paul, George, and Ringo. You, especially since two of them are no longer with us, what you mean is you love their music. If you love Mozart, you don't mean the man. You're talking about his, his music, his legacy. And I think that's what we tend to think of when we think of corporate names of entities that that particularly in our case have consisted of many many members and um I think when I use the name Jethro Tull in a musical context as opposed to the 18th century agriculturalist context, then I'm talking about the repertoire. And that's what uh, I'm doing, as we are at the moment, the 50th anniversary Jethro Tull tour. Then that is really talking about the Jethro Tull repertoire. There is no music in in this show, which is music released by me simply under the name Ian Anderson as a solo project, for example. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't exist in this tour. Hence, it's Jethro Tull. But, you know, answering your question really is, in some ways, it doesn't make a busting amount of difference what I call myself. <laughs> if I'm the guy on stage and the one who plays the flute, then I think people will accept that that is probably going to consist at any time of a fair amount of Jethro Tull music, whether it's Ian Anderson playing the Christmas Jethro Tell concerts or the orchestral Jethro Tell concerts, and I use my own name, it's usually in there somewhere, because for all these years, people might have thought that I was Jethro Tull. Well, not they might have. I know some people did. Yeah, it still happens. I put my own name in the mix, because at this point in my life, I'd like you to know who I am before I die. <laughs>
1: of course. <laughs> well, Thank what, you. <laughs> what was it about the flute? Did you play the flute in school? What was it that made you pick up that mm. instrument?
0: Uh, Eric Clapton made me pick it up, because when I was just turning 20 years old, And I'd heard Eric Clapton during the the months prior to that playing with John Mayall's Blues Breakers, and I I realised this new hotshot guitar player was the, um, you know, the standard that everybody else had to try to follow or live up to. And I wasn't that good. You know, in 1967, I knew I was never going to be as good a guitar player as Eric Clapton. So I looked around for something else to do and and traded my Fender Strat, my 1960s (laughs) Fender Stratocaster, probably worth about $30,000 today. Ouch. I traded it in for a for a $40 student flute and a Shure Unidyne 3 microphone made by Shure Brothers in Chicago. And that felt like a pretty good deal. And indeed it was, as it turned out to be.
1: Well, you certainly put an indelible stamp on your music with a flute. It stood out. How did you first perceive Jethro Tull? Early on, it was considered a blues band.
0: That's what we were playing when four members who became Jethro Tull got together in uh, December of 1967 we we, we didn't we, we went through a number of names during the next few weeks and settled on Jethro Tull at the suggestion of our agent uh, at the end of January in 1968 but uh, at that point in order to get any work we had to jump on the bandwagon which was to play essentially blues and so it was guitar driven blues music to which i added the flute and and that gave us the point of difference over the other blues bands at the Marquee Club at the time, like uh, Fleetwood Mac and Savoy Brown and Chicken Shack and John Mayle's Blues Breakers and so on. So we we kind of sneaked in there on the coattails of the blues, uh, underground blues boom. And then during the next months, I started to write the music that took us more into a progressive context with influences from other parts of the world and different kinds of musical genres. um, We didn't stick with, at least I didn't want to stick with that notion that Jethro Dahl was a blues band for for too long because, you know, I, I was neither black American or could honestly portray myself as having had the cultural, the ethnic experiences that would have made it credible. I would have just been an imitator. And so it's felt more logical to me to move more towards... Western European music as the prime sources of influence, but having said that, I've never lost my reverence or my degree of affiliation for blues and jazz, and it's uh, it's still inherent in much of the music that i play it's just not the prime influence
1: jethro Tull was the second concert i ever went to i was maybe 14 15 1970 ish my visual memory is you with the pink tights standing on one leg like a flamingo and i'm pretty sure a cod piece did you set out to create a character or was that just you
0: well if you remember pink tights, then and a card piece, I think that would that would put it at being one thousand nine hundred and seventy four because I wore a pair of tights where one leg of the tights was kind of blue and the other was more of a you know slightly pinky um, mauve kind of color, um, and they were clothes made for me by the costume of the Royal Ballet in London, and he being a, a clothes designer for one of the most famous ballet companies in the world was the kind of person who was able to understand that you needed clothes that were flexible that you could move around in they were easy to wash and clean and and so um, that's who I asked to make these uh, these clothes for me you know for a while that was quite a useful relationship you know for a couple of years of uh, of having uh, a designer sort of produce that stuff but you know, it's, it's a bit it's a bit like dressing up for a, you know, it's a, a bit silly, really, and I, I think I, I wasn't really very comfortable wearing those things, but, you know, at the time, nobody else was doing it, so... If you were a flute player standing on one leg and wearing a card piece and tights, people did tend to pay attention, and uh, it's
1: memorable. I,
0: I, don't, I think I think we didn't have much in the way of card pieces again until Michael Jackson. You know, I remember thinking, I, I wonder if anyone's pointed out to him that this has been done before.
1: <laughs> but I love the idea that you can identify eras with the color of tights that you were wearing at the time.
0: Yeah, I can I can recall for lots of different reasons when <laughs> certain things happen because you know they are all tied up together. You know. If you think of a certain song, it's a certain album, it's a certain era, it's the the shows you did in certain countries, the clothes you wore, the the staging, the production, all of these things are interlinked. So I tend to um, have all these cross-references that very quickly, so far, very quickly, slot into place. And I I know what it is I'm talking about. However, at some point, uh, senility will get the better of me and those (laughs) cross-references will simply not make the links and I'll be sitting there mumbling and (laughs) dribbling down my chin and unable to answer most of your questions.
1: Yes, it doesn't play favorites, unfortunately.
0: When when that happens, stop me and hang up. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> We're just coming off of the 49th anniversary of Woodstock. Jethro Tull was invited to play, right? And you didn't.
0: I mean, yes, I'm not quite sure what the degree of invitation was. Our, our manager Terry Ellis had said, "Oh, we, you know, we can go play this concert that's just been announced in upstate New York and um, it's a big going to be a big outdoor show and, and I said, "Well, Who's going to be there? And he said, oh, it's going to be all all the hippies. It's a big sort of hippie festival thing. And I said, will they keep their clothes on? He said, probably not. And I said, (laughs) will they be taking drugs? He said, oh, I'm sure they will. (laughs) So I said, you know what? I think I might be washing my hair that night because um, I'm not really into the... You know, it was a connection I never really felt. It was something not peculiarly American because hippies did exist in Paris and London and other places, but very much in imitation of that uh, original San Francisco scene where it it, um, it really began in terms of flower power and that hippie generation. So I didn't really feel I, inden- I identified in any way with, with all of that, either culturally or in terms of um, necessarily you know clothes and lifestyle and so i felt it's not really probably the best thing for us to do and it was certainly a very good career move not to do it because we would have been i think i don't like the word tarnish but it would have been a label hung around our necks for the rest of time that we were you know one of the bands that played at woodstock and i i guess you know, we probably would have done pretty well and put in a furious 35-minute performance that people would have remembered. And I think it was too early for Jethro Tell to, to go out in that degree of publicity in front of such a big audience and to have participated in something that would have tended to describe us for the rest of our time. Some some folks got away with it. The Who were already well well established at that point, so they they could do Woodstock and move on. Other bands that were Perhaps not so well known, like Country Joe and the Fish, and Ten Years After. It was kind of the kiss of death, really. I remember seeing Ten Years After just a few years ago and going up to Leo Lyons when he was still the bass player and saying, Hi, Leo, how are you doing? And what have you been playing tonight? as he walked off stage, and I, I noticed he had a set list taped to the side of his bass guitar. And I I leaned over his shoulder and I said, what what were you playing? He said, oh, usual. He said, "Uh, this is the set list that's been taped to my guitar since we played at Woodstock in 1969. You know, that's a a bit of a sobering thought. Yes. to have been, in a way, limited to playing a particular set of music that um, that defines you as a musician and as a band for the next 40 years. You
1: mentioned earlier about when you get off the road, you have time for other projects. You've been involved with awareness for a lot of different things, including wildlife conservation, deep vein thrombosis, you've had a salmon farm, and I've read somewhere that you also grow chili peppers. Tell us about your garden. Yeah.
0: We have a we have a garden. Uh, I mean, I, I have to say this year I've not grown any chili peppers at all because I've, in the last few years I just have grown so many and so many uh, really hot varieties that a little goes a long way and my freezer <laughs> is stuffed full of frozen <laughs> chilies from the last three or four years and, and I really, really have to stop until I've worked my way through at least some of those. So this year I decided for the first time, I wouldn't grow any chili I've, peppers. Uh, but yes, I, you know, I tend to mostly stick with the state-of-the-art hottest chili peppers around. I mean, the Carolina Reaper is one that I've grown ah, yes. the last couple of years, mm-hmm. and that's a uh, quite a perky little fellow. It started actually about probably 10 years ago when I started growing habanero peppers, which, you know, coming originally from the Caribbean area, they were, they were, the, they were the hottest act in town at the time, but quickly to be pushed to one side by the, the famous but jalokia coming from India and Bangladesh. And so from then on, I just tended to see who was producing hybrids of the latest, hottest, sexiest chili pepper in the they work for me, but I have to grow them under glass. Our climate here will not allow me to grow them except in a heated. Uh, greenhouse context. So they are, we have a short growing season when even indoors, we can try and push them on to get them to fruit by end of August.
1: I love that you have such diverse interests. Well,
0: I have a, a low threshold of boredom. So I tend to <laughs> get on and do things and learn things and read things and try and understand things in life. It's just my my nature. I, I'm not someone who can sit down and uh, stare at the far horizon or go out and play golf or go fishing or something. I find that a little bit too static and not really exercising my brain enough, so I tend to do things that are, you know, for me, more stimulating in a creative sense.
1: Well, we're grateful that you're still finding creative stimulation and bringing us the music of Jethro Tull and looking forward to this 50th anniversary, celebrating that incredible history. And we look forward to seeing you at the Mann Music Center on the 8th of September.
0: Well, well it says on my itinerary that I'm going to be there and I have an airplane <laughs> ticket, so I think you can, you can count on that.
1: We'll be looking for you. Thank you so Terrific. much for taking the Good time to talk in.
0: talk Thank you very much.